Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, August 26th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. One of the reasons I find science fascinating is because it opens up my eyes to aspects of the world that I hadn't seen before, and it also helps me understand some of the universe's biggest mysteries. So how an animal as big as an orca whale can be socialized and trained to perform for humans is one of those mysteries, in my opinion. When I was given a book detailing the personal experiences of a seasoned killer whale trainer, I knew we had to have him on the show. The book is called Beneath the Surface, and it's published in 2015, and it's written by John Hargrove, co-authored by Howard Chuan-Uan. Hargrove is a former senior killer whale trainer at SeaWorld, and he also worked as a supervisor of killer whale training for Marineland in France. You might know him from the 2013 documentary Blackfish, uh, and he's also spent the last few years advocating against keeping killer whales in captivity. So let me give you a bit of a background on his experience. He started his career as an apprentice trainer in 1993, working for SeaWorld in San Antonio. Two years later, he transferred to SeaWorld in San Diego, where he worked until 2001, ultimately landing a top spot as a senior trainer in the park's Shamu Stadium. He then left SeaWorld to work at Marineland's training facility in France. In 2008, he returned to SeaWorld San Antonio, where he worked as senior trainer in the Shamu Stadium until he resigned in 2012. This show, this episode, has been a long time coming. And that's because the topic is controversial, and we've done a lot of work to substantiate his claims and to make sure that we are providing our listeners with as much accuracy as we possibly can, while at the same time letting Hargrove be heard. Now, Hargrove is not a fan of his former employer, SeaWorld, as will become abundantly clear very early in the interview. And SeaWorld claims that he resigned in 2012 only after being disciplined for a serious safety violation, which seems to have involved a lock on a gate in the killer whale tanks, which Hargrove noticed was left open by a colleague. And he says that he pointed out the error to his colleague immediately, but he waited a day to notify his supervisors. And that's uh, what the company um, you know, took issue with. 
He says he left the company for other reasons, uh, not because he was disciplined for that safety violation. In an effort to be comprehensive, we asked SeaWorld to answer some detailed questions about the allegations that Hargrove makes in our interview, which they declined to do. Instead, they told us that they dispute many of the things he has said, uh, including things he published in his book, and we'll provide more details from their response at the end of the interview. And just a quick note for our listeners, some of the discussion is graphic in nature, so you are forewarned before listening to the interview. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with John Hargrove. Thanks to Magoosh for sponsoring today's episode. I've taken a lot of tests in my day, the GRE, the GMAT, the SAT, the ACT, and I only succeeded because of test prep, but it is expensive. It can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for them. Magoosh offers a better solution, affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. If you get stuck on a problem or concept, Magoosh offers friendly email help from their team of expert tutors. Magoosh's test prep starts at under $100. Wow, that's cheap. And they guarantee you'll improve your score or they'll give you your money back. Join the 1.5 million students who have chosen Magoosh. Go to magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now and get 20% off with code MINDS at checkout. Thanks, Magoosh, for your support. Prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride. If you know me, I am a podcast junkie. And let me tell you about a new podcast that I really love, Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. It takes a closer look at prominent figures who change history and sometimes died tragically, but not in the way that you might have thought. It features a ensemble cast of voice actors with some narrative structures that give you sort of insider hidden facts that you might not have known of while bringing the stories to life. Each Wednesday, they have a whole new story with an exceptional array of stories already out there on Alexander Hamilton, Harry Houdini, even Kurt Cobain. So visit iTunes or your favorite podcast app and find Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Again, that's Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Or visit parcast.com slash lives to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash lives to listen now. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, John Hargrove. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So you start out in your book talking about your experience as a child going to SeaWorld. And I found that really compelling because I think I had the same experience. You go there and you're just, you know, enamored by these animals. So tell us a little bit about what those first experiences were like and how those led you to pursue this desire to become a trainer. Well, you know, it's it's funny that you had the same experience because a lot of us or I should say most of us at Shamu Stadium that have succeeded in our careers and we rose to the highest ranks and we did everything that you could do with the whales, both out of the water and in the water for shows. Uh, We all had almost identical stories to how we were kids. And it's exactly how you just described. You know, you get, you're very young, you go with your parents and you're just completely, you know, seduced into this environment. And, um, it's later in life and when you're an adult and you're in it, you realize that this is all a very conscious move by the corporation. 
uh, which is really sick and scary at the same time. But yeah, I mean, I went into SeaWorld as a six-year-old and I didn't know anything like that existed. I just loved uh, animals. And I think that's something that's either in a person or it's not in a person. And um, up until six and especially growing up in the 70s in southeast Texas, the only thing I knew that you could do if you loved animals was to be a veterinarian. So when I went to SeaWorld and I saw, oh, look, look at these people in the water with these animals I had never even seen, didn't even know what they were. And I could immediately even understand that there was a relationship there between those trainers and those whales. I could see it and I could get it. So I was um, it just hit all the major points of what already knew who I was as a six year old, which was I was fascinated by water. There was this athletic component because I've always been competitive in sports, even from a very young age. And, you know, this just love and empathy and reciprocal relationship with another animal. So it had all of those factors. And then when you you um, build in the 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 stadium and the lights and the 5000 people and, you know, it's created to seduce you in and to make you think this is the most incredible place ever. And um, the sad part about that is, is that people then they kind of put blinders on. And again, this is a this is an intentional, conscious effort by the corporation to do this to people so that they don't question the moral and ethics of animals being in captivity because they're so awe inspired by the show. So they walk away and they think, oh, my gosh, that was amazing, because just looking at an orca is impressive. So you could put that orca in the biggest dump facility on the planet, you know, just just t- trashy, old and everything. And you're still going to walk away and think that was an amazing experience because the animals are so amazing and they're so impressive. So you just get really seduced by this environment and you don't even think of, is this right? Should these animals be here? Because you're so caught up in it. I mean, it's almost like magic, right? That the that the entire show is directing your attention to something. And that's what I found really interesting is that that, you know, it's it's not easy to become a trainer. And I'd I'd love for you to tell us sort of just how hard it is to get to where you ended up. But also this this notion that, you know, what what the show is selling is this idea that we can have this relationship, very close, intimate relationship with a wild animal, and that it's mutually beneficial, that the orcas love to do what it is that they're doing. So, you know, I'm sort of jumping ahead of of myself a little bit because I really do want to talk about how you can train these animals to do what they do. Um, But first, tell us, how do you become a show trainer the way that you did? What do you have to do to get there? You know, it's uh, very few positions uh, exist. And a lot of people, not now, I mean, obviously things have shifted now and I'm glad, I'm happy for that. Um, but back in my day, uh, and not to date me too old, you know, I just resigned in 2012, but you know, this was a very, um, very, uh, um, sought after position to be a killer whale trainer at SeaWorld. So there was a lot of competition and a lot of people, uh, did I, I remember one time 
when I was a young, like going through adolescence and I was applying and every year I would go uh, on summer vacation, I would go to SeaWorld and I would harass all the trainers. What do I need to do to become a trainer and writing letters? And I was just completely obsessed with it. And because I knew how hard it was going to be and it was really going to take that level of commitment to get there. And I remember at one point, uh, someone in management at SeaWorld telling me that there were 100,000 applications a year between the, at that time, there were four SeaWorld parks. And on average, only four people a year are hired. Wow. You know, they want the, they want the kid that is completely obsessed by it. Because think about it, those people are very moldable. You know, if you've got this person like, like this is, this is the only thing that I want to do in my life and I'll do anything I have to do to get it, then you are the perfect specimen for a place like SeaWorld because they know they can immediately put you between a rock and a hard place and you're going to do whatever they tell you to do and not question authority because this is the only thing that you want to do. So, you know, I fit the perfect mold just like so many other trainers did. You know, and all of us that were in that position, we were needing that. We were, you know, this was what we wanted since we were children. And this was our dream. This was our passion. And instead of having that one uh, solitary charismatic leader that a cult has, the whales kind of replace that charismatic leader. The stadiums and the people and the, the, the lights, and that replaces that one single charismatic leader. So, you know, then... Then uh, it's very difficult. The swim test is very difficult. First, there's a swim test that gets you hired into the animal training department, which is Sea Lion Stadium, Dolphin Stadium, and Shamu Stadium. You don't control where you go. Management will put you at whatever stadium they feel you best serve the company. Uh, like what skill, you know, if you, if you tend to be a, uh, a very funny individual and, and say maybe your athletic skills are not um, the strongest, you would be better suited for Sea Lion Stadium. And if you are a very athletic and, um, you know, type person and you're, you don't have much of a personality on a, uh, uh, you know, as in a, as in a comedic role, um, you would be better suited for Shamu Stadium because, you know, you're not really doing comedy there and it is more about athletics, but, if you get moved to Shamu Stadium, then you have to take a much more difficult swim test. Um, and at the end of my career, we were having to take that swim test every three months. And if you failed it, you were moved out of Shamu, regardless of how many years of experience you had and regardless of the relationship you had with the whales. So there was constant, enormous pressure on us to uh, perform. And, you know, in doing that type of job, too, um, our bodies are not meant to swim with an 8,000 pound killer whale. So all of us that swam with the whales, especially for years, we were just constantly injured. We were either having surgeries or things were broken or, uh, I mean, we used to think nothing of broken fingers and broken toes. We would tape them and we would go out and do shows like it was nothing. Uh, I can remember doing shows when I had 101 fever. I was getting in 48 degree water and swimming with killer whales with 101 degree fever. So, I mean, those, we would ha- we would come up from be- doing deep stuff, you know, to the bottom 36 feet with the whales at enormous speed and pressure. And we would come up and we would blow out actual chunks of our sinuses 
So sinus tissue would hemorrhage, break off, and fall out of our sinus cavity onto the stage like a bloody piece of flesh. And we would laugh about it because it was happening to all of us, and that was our life. Wow. I want to step back a little because I do want to talk about how you actually develop this relationship uh, with the orcas. Um, and in particular, you know, how, how does that happen in terms of animal shaping and behavior? But I want to start out with you finally got this job as an apprentice trainer, which must have been, I mean, you, you quit college to do this because this was like your dream. You're only going to college in order to get a psychology degree because you thought that's what you needed to get the job. Exactly. And, you, know, you got the job first. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, I think that obviously you've learned so much on the job, uh, much more so, I think, than you would have learned doing a degree in psychology. Having a degree in my psychology myself, (laughs) um, I can absolutely guarantee that, that I know much, much, much less about shaping animal behavior than you do. But let's start with now you've got this job as an apprentice trainer. And, you know, pretty soon into it, you started to see that this notion that, you know, there's this perfect relationship between killer whale and trainer is not right. And so in your book, you know, just to prompt you, you describe the fact that everybody's watching. So so tell us a little bit about in the stadium when the trainers were in the water. I know that doesn't happen anymore now. What was it that you observed that made you wonder whether or not the whales were really happy to be there? Well, gosh, figuring it out for the whales took longer because at Killer Whale, it takes so long before you're allowed to do anything. I mean, just scrubbing buckets and setting the food buckets and draining them and re-icing them and cleaning everything and just running around. And just I mean, you're just abused at that level. And, that's, and, and there's a lot of hazing that goes on at that level. And um, you're expected to take it, you know, and it's just ridiculous. It's not a professional environment. And here you are, like, you know, responsible for the lives of these multi-million dollar whales and the, and the responsibility for your own life and the life of your colleagues. But those were the first things that you pick up on, because when you go into it, you know, I was so naive. I was only 20 years old when I when I got the call that I was going to swim test. I was still 19. So by the time the paper went, went through and I actually showed up to swim test, I had just turned 20. So I was a brand new 20 year old and I had this envision that I was going to live this life happily ever after with these whales and everyone that I worked with, we were all going to love each other and respect each other and just be, you know, eat, you know, each other's, um, best man and um all this and our each other's weddings you you know it's just you have this fantastical view and a lot of that is youth and naivety but a a lot of it is you know they make you think that and growing up with their glossy commercials and their advertising which are all just a bunch of lies so um you know you get in and initially what you realize is that these people are not your best friends these people are competing against you cutthroat because there's only so many full-time positions, even though they're working you full-time hours. So if you want insurance and you want benefits, but more important to all of us was to get promoted to the next level because, like I said, especially at Killer Whale, you can't even begin to start to do the things with the whales, especially in the water, until you're you know, three levels higher than a, an apprentice. 
So that's many years away still. And then it's many years after that before you're doing everything with the whales, including the most dangerous. So it's like this constant, you begin, you, you begin day one in this just flat out race to see who can get to those, to that, to those levels faster than the other one so that you'll have a shot at being able to, you know, act out your dreams. So it creates this very cutthroat mentality amongst trainers and um it's sad because we were supposed to be best friends with each other and and really you're competing with each other nonstop and and management encouraged it you know they would pull us aside into the office and they would say you know there's only one position coming up for that promotion and you're doing really good but you know, Caitlin, she's she's kicking butt on the swim test, and I think her times are a little faster. And you know, she might even be able to swim a little further under underwater on that one single breath of air. I mean, so it's just, you know, they are they are consciously pitting you against your colleagues. It's just a gross atmosphere. But then later, as your experience grows and you start to learn. Um, that, oh, okay, all these things that they told me all these years that were meant that the, in their words meant nothing, that these whales were, and they still say it today, they're healthy and they're thriving. What a load of crap. They're not, <laughs> they're not, they're not healthy and they're not thriving or they wouldn't be so doped up on so many medications every single day. I've worked with whales that have never come off of medication their entire life. Just to give you an example, 100% of the whales have damaged teeth. About 50% of the whales, they're so damaged, we have to manually drill their teeth. We have to drill them out manually with no anesthetic. And then once they're drilled out, we have to invasively irrigate with a catheter, metal catheter, and a high-powered uh, machine that shoots a solution, hydrogen peroxide solution, into the tooth. That's very painful for the animals. They're constantly getting their stomachs scoped, vaginally scoped. Uh, they're being treated for ulcers. They're constantly having infections. Uh, we had drug animals, uh, multiple animals on antipsychotic drugs, Valium. I mean, it just... Wait, 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 uh, wait, 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 wait. So, <laughs> I mean, first of all, how do you know that a whale needs an antipsychotic drug. I mean, what is it about their behavior and, and what is the, what effect does the drug have? I mean, you know, their nervous systems are so different from ours. Tell us a little bit about what you observe from their behavior that, that then changes when you give them the drugs. Well, one of the whales that we gave an antipsychotic to, Splash, they believed he was epileptic. So he, he had seizure-like events. Um, but again, this science is so new. A lot of times, these vets are just guessing. They're just guessing. So it's like, you know, you don't, you know, you bring up a good point. It's like, how do you know? It's like, it's not like with people that these things have been tried and uh, clinical trials, one, stage one, two, and three, and FDA approval. It's not like that with, 
with killer whales and dolphins and sea lions in captivity. So um, Splash was believed to be epileptic, and he would have these seizure-like events. And I used to swim with Splash. And, I mean, how crazy is that? So, one, he was a sexually mature male, which there carries a risk with that because they can become sexually excited and try to breed you in the water, and that can kill you, as you can imagine. So... It was already risky that we're swimming with a sexually mature male, and he had he had a documented aggressive history. So here we are. He's he's had known attacks on trainers. He's sexually mature, and he seizures. And we were still swimming in the water with him. And then on top of that, we were giving him an antipsychotic, which it had a side effect where half the time he looked like he was like at Woodstock from the '60s. I mean, he wasn't even there. I mean, his eyes were like, he would like be sitting in the water. I was in the, be in the water with him and he'd be, you know, dorsal up back at the surface and then looking at me eyes under the water, which was, would be a normal position. And then all of a sudden he would just lift his head up and his eyes would roll back in the back of his head. So I would be like, this is so dangerous that we're swimming with this because we don't know what's going through his mind, and more importantly, he doesn't know what's going through his mind. So, you know, it's just – but that was one animal we've had – and we've used antipsychotics to try to um, – for aggression reasons, also for um, – we've used medications to suppress testosterone production. Um, which also had a similar effect, like where the animals were just completely like just doped up, just out of their mind. And I would argue the point. I'm like, which do you think is safer, swimming a, with a male that has testosterone? And if something starts to happen, at least he's in he's in his right frame of mind and we can hopefully behaviorally work through it. Or because you have him so doped up on this experimental medication that I can't even reach him. I can't even reach him to try to behaviorally work through it. You know, like there, there's a safer decision here, and it's not the one that involves doping him up with drugs. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about how you, you know, behaviorally work with an animal. So let you know, let's let's get to the point where now you're working with the whales, and what do you do to? I mean, here's here, even starting from the, let's say you've got a new whale. How do you train them? You know, initially, uh, well, okay, see, so there's, if you think of, first of all, if you look at killer whales and put them, if you look at two major facets of them, one, they're easy to train in the sense because they're so incredibly intelligent. They can, I mean, it's almost like an alien intelligence. It's, it's so, it's so advanced. It's so scary smart. Um, the problem solving ability, the rate of comprehension, um, but they're also very dangerous animals. So that makes it very difficult and requires a lot of experience and your relationship to be where it needs to be. And no matter what you do, these are still all calculated risks. You know, just like with Dawn with Telecom, she had a ton of experience. She had, uh, she had 15 years of experience. I had 14 years of experience. She'd worked with Telecom for years. Um, I believe Don loved Tilikum. 
Um, well, actually, I know that she loved telecom. We all believe that telecom, you know, um, whether you want to label it as love or you don't want to be anthropomorphic, but there was a true reciprocal relationship there. But he still is a wild animal at the end of the day. He's still a killer whale at the end of the day and an apex predator. And they can still make those decisions. So they can still betray you. So even. let's just tell our listeners what happened to Don, because I, I don't know that everyone knows. Yeah, so Don Branshaw, who I had known personally for nine years, um, she had started in 94. I had started in 93. She was at SeaWorld of Florida. And uh, Tillicum in 2010, he, uh, during a Dine with Shamu performance, which is when the people pay extra to eat their lunch poolside around one of the back pools and and then the trainers we would we would give some type of show for those people it would be a modified show from what we would do in the front show pool but sometimes we would swim with the whales um sometimes we wouldn't we would just do a dry interaction but it's still a type of show and anyway and during that dying with shamu performance dawn was laying down on the ledge she wasn't in the water with telecom but she was laying on the ledge which she was approved to do which we're all approved to do, even with the animals that are restricted. And he either grabbed her by her arm or her hair because it was conflicting testimony. He pulled her in. She was dismembered. So he scalped her completely. So above the right above her eyebrows to behind her ear, her full scalp with her full head of hair um, was on the bottom of the pool. Um, her uh, spinal cord was uh, so severely damaged. It was, it was, essentially severed her all her remaining limbs were dislocated um, he completely tore off her left arm at the shoulder it was completely detached he actually swallowed it and then regurgitated it back up and you know he just her bones and her face were crushed and he just completely mutilated her and you know that was the hard part for me because it's like I could have accepted more easily that she drowned you know uh, because all of us that have experience, we know what those whales are capable of. It was not a shock to me, as, as, as harsh as this sounds, it was not a shock to me that he had done that to her. I knew he was capable of it. All the whales are capable of it. And Tillicum is not an isolated incident. We have had other killer whales front that are owned by SeaWorld that have killed trainers. And we've had other whales that are owned by SeaWorld that have nearly killed trainers. So Telecom is not this isolated animal that SeaWorld would love for the public and the media to believe. They try so hard to push that as hard as they can. It's just not true. So let me get to this question of, okay, you spend all this time shaping the animal's behavior and you as a trainer have a good idea of what they're going to do. I mean, you, you described two instances in your book where you felt like you knew that the animal was getting aggressive. So talk to us a little bit about what is this difference between an animal that's cooperating and following your signals. And obviously, you probably do that over multiple, you know, small rewards. So, you know, you shape each aspect of the behavior, etc. And then they they become aggressive. Like, talk to us a little bit about how that process works. Well, I probably had 10 major waterwork aggressions in my career where I've been grabbed in the mouth of a killer whale and held under against my will. So, um, you know, so not where I, even where I, I felt like it was becoming aggressive. I mean, I knew it was a full on aggressive attack. Um, but again, um, we're so trained to handle those situations. Of course, we would hide it to the public, but 
you know, when something like that happens, imagine with the person and um, you catch someone at the wrong time and they bite your head off. You're, you've called them up on the phone. Hey, how are you doing today? And it, they're, you know, they just got off. You know, unbeknownst to you, they just got off the telephone call where it was a very bad phone call for them. So they're very short with you and they hang up on you or they bite your head off or whatever. So imagine in the killer whale social structure, when we go to, we call it stepping down to the whales, which means beginning the interaction, we're trained to look and try to assess behaviorally what's going on within their social structure. But a lot of times they hide it and you, you, there aren't any kind of precursors or, or, or behavioral signs that there is conflict within their social structure. So most of the time when there is some type of, of an aggressive event from with a whale towards a trainer is because there's some type of so, social structure problem within those whales and you are now putting yourself in the middle of it. So, uh, and the whales are going to take it out on you. So in those instances, the best armor, as I would teach younger trainers, the best armor you have is the stronger your relationship is. Because the stronger your relationship is, the more likely you are to try to turn that animal around. So not only is it your relationship, but it's also about making the right behavioral decisions at the right time. If you make the wrong behavioral decisions or even if it's the right behavioral decision, but at the wrong time, you can make that aggression escalate and intensify to where you might not be able to get out of it safely. So, and that's where experience comes in. And that's why, you know, even when trainers who are swimming with killer whales, they may only be allowed and have a high enough rank to swim with the least dangerous whales in the corporation to get to the point where you're swimming with a Kasaka or somebody like that, like I did, you know, you're looking at, year, you know, years and years and years and years more after you've already begun swimming with killer whales because those animals are so much more uh, dangerous and the potential is so much greater with those animals. So you just look for those opportunities to when the whale will calm down. So you really, in the beginning, you have to say, okay, this is going to be ugly and I'm going to get beat up, but this animal this whale at some point is going to start to calm down and I'm going to look for that opportunity, try to seize that opportunity, turn it around into a positive and redirect them and really motivate them and say, yes, this is what I want from you. Come on, you can do it. And, you know, it takes it takes a strong willed person, especially if you've just been drugged down to the bottom of the pool in the mouth of a 7,000 or an 8,000 pound kilowell to keep your composure about you and, you know, work through it behaviorally in your mind and then act it out and have the belief system that you are going to get through it. And, um, you know, and we're just so programmed to be that way, to handle those situations. Because if you're not the person in the water and say, but you're the control spotter on stage and it's happening to someone else in the water, you have to have that same type of mindset and, and confidence and everything because you're, you're the lifeline to this person in the water if they were to go unconscious. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure at Shamu Stadium and and, you know, you would think, especially with everything that we did and how much money we made the company, um, you know, I was a senior trainer in 2001 swimming with the most dangerous waterwork whale in the corporation, Kasaka, and I was making $15 
and 45 cents an hour as a senior trainer. Wow. Yes. And they were making a hundred million dollars a quarter profit. Yeah, that's, that just leaves me speechless. But, you know, I kind of just want to get back to this, this, one of the most impressive you know, descriptions of, of in your book that, that kind of stuck with me is this fact that, you know, there are these moments when you are literally, you know, being hunted by this killer whale and you have to do something very counterintuitive as, as the potential prey, you can't run away because the whale's faster. Exactly. <laughs> so, and they're, and they're wanting you to run away because it's fun for them to hunt you. Yeah. It's, not, it's fun for that predator to kick in. So, and, so so, how do you change them from going into this, like, what seems to be a very kind of instinctual, you know, the, the, the whale thing to do, right? right? Which is to hunt this seal-like thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, right? How, yeah, how do you... Them, yeah. yeah. How do you get that whale to be your friend again, you know, and, and follow your, your directions? Well, and, you know, that, that's how Alexis Martinez was killed 60 days before dawn. I just want to cut in to point out that Alexis Martinez was not a SeaWorld employee. Uh, he worked at a different park that SeaWorld didn't own or manage, but he was killed by an orca that was on loan from SeaWorld and uh, that was under the supervision of a SeaWorld trainer. Let's get back to the interview. He was having a bad session with keto and things were going south, so to speak. And um, there ended up being an emergency recall by the SeaWorld supervisor who was there and to leave Alexis in the water because things were really starting to go poorly. And um, by uh, Brian, the SeaWorld supervisor's own uh, court testimony, he admitted that Keto was not fully committed to his hand target, meaning that he wasn't, he he was already exhibiting signs that he wasn't going to stay under control at stage. And then the SeaWorld supervisor then instructed the Alexis Martinez, the trainer in the water, to swim out. And as soon as he went to swim out, Keto broke from control from the SeaWorld supervisor and immediately grabbed Alexis by his leg and drug him down to the bottom of the pool and crushed him up along the bottom of the pool and killed him. And again, it was that, that you're trying to get away from me. You're trying to, you know, swim away. So I had an incident one time with Freya where, um, you know, she had already pulled me under a couple of times. And just to make it clear to our listeners, uh, Hargrove here is talking about an incident that occurred when he was working at a non-SeaWorld park in France. She had not responded to the first emergency recall tone that I had asked for. She was not uh, giving me any behaviors that I asked. Um, she finally did respond to an emergency recall, and I could see her at the control position and her eyes were literally rolled backwards where she was still looking at me, even though she was facing, you know, the other direction towards the control trainer. So I swam to the very middle of the pool because, because she wasn't expecting me to do that. She was expecting me to try to make a mad dash for it and try to reach the side. Well, as I would teach younger trainers and it would drive me crazy because sometimes you get these really cocky, younger trainers and they think they know it all and they've never even swam with a killer whale. So I would, I, re- I would really go off on these, these, these kids because it's just like you're, that mindset's going to get yourself, get you killed and get other people killed. But uh, because I have one argument with one, one trainer, cause he thought he was fast enough to outswim a killer whale out of the pool. I go, first of all, do you realize how ridiculous you sound even saying that? 
You're no no human on the planet, not even Michael Phelps, can outswim a killer whale. And if you think that you can, you're an idiot. So, um, and I said, don't, and I better not ever, ever see you try to do something that stupid because I'll make sure you will never swim with a killer whale ever again. Well, he never even got to the level where he ever got in the water, which was probably for the best. Um, but so when I swam to the middle of the pool to Freya, you know, it shocked the, the French trainers because I also said, send her back to me. And they were like, quoi? You know, French for what? And, and I was like, send her back to me. Because, you know, they were expecting, okay, they got her and he's going to make this mad dash and swim out. And it's like, no, that would have equaled almost certain death for me. So I knew my only chance was to show her, look, you, you're in control. You're, you've got me, Freya. Uh, you're, I'm totally in your world. You, I'm under your control. I'm, sw- I'm going to swim into the middle of the pool where I'm at my most vulnerable, where nobody can reach me and there's no way I can swim out because I'm going to choose to trust you that you and I can work through this. And when she came back to me, she was like an angel. She did every single thing that I asked. She was 100% behaviorally. Her mood was completely changed. And then I asked her to take me out of the pool. I started to give me a peck push to the side of the pool, which she did. And she was a completely changed animal. I just think this is so fascinating to me because it's like, you know, sometimes I have these tiny, tiny minor battles with my, you know, two-year-old toddler. <laughs> I feel like if he was an 8,000-pound toddler, these would be very different interactions, <laughs> you know. But, but you know, you, what you're describing really does underline this myth that... SeaWorld is trying to promote, uh, which is that we have this wonderful, beautiful relationship with these animals and, you know, the awe and the wonderment. And, you know, although a lot of people say, well, that myth, though, is what's responsible for in, um, kids falling in love with wild animals and then maybe wanting to conserve the oceans, right? You know, killer whales are among the most beautiful, arguably, animals in, in, that we've ever had on this planet. And, like, doesn't that make you want to save the ocean, keep the oceans clean? Because that's where the killer whales are. Um, as we move to a time, I disagree. Yeah, with that, so, so exactly. So I want you to tell me why that's not true, and what can we do now to engender that kind of love? Like, wh- where should we go from here? Well, the best line that I love is Sandberg, who was featured also in the in the documentary Blackfish, and she's a former SeaWorld trainer, and she said it. She says it so well, and it's so concise, and it's so easy to remember. It's like adults, children, they have an appreciation and a love for dinosaurs. And we have never seen a dinosaur. We've never had a caged dinosaur at some zoo to learn from it. And yet we have full appreciation of dinosaurs. And I think it's such a great example because, again, the manipulation happens because I've heard SeaWorld. They'll try, they'll use that. They'll try to say, like, you know, we were a victim of our own success. We, we are the ones that made people fall in love with killer whales and now they're turning against us. Okay. Let me remind people how this started. SeaWorld was using bombs and throwing bombs, explosives into the, to the ocean. They were also harpooning 
killer whales and then drag killing their family members in the process and then dragging them as they're harpooned into land and so that they could ride on them in shows and make money off of them and they were dying like within you know 181 days or the first killer whale at SeaWorld only lived six years before she died of blood poisoning and it's just like the this is how SeaWorld began. So if you think that SeaWorld honestly began because they were going to try to help your children to appreciate the sea and appreciate killer whales, like you've drank the Kool-Aid too. They're handing out the, handing out the Kool-Aid and you're, you've drank too much of it. And I just want to make it clear to our listeners that SeaWorld no longer captures orcas in the wild and hasn't done so since 1979. Back to the interview. So people need to remember that they didn't start this this company for education. It was started for entertainment, and even the owners will tell you that. So where do we go from here? What what are your what are your plans? Well, you know what's great about it is that you know for a while in the beginning you needed like what was the next negative headline and what was you know to kind of you know keep it going, but now the brand has been so damaged. And rightfully so. I mean, we didn't do, you know, we just pointed out the truth. We just pointed out what was truth, you know, honestly happening to these animals and the the truth, because I did it. I'm not, I'm not some journalist that's just saying, oh, okay, I heard this story or whatever. I lived this life. I did these things every single day to these whales. Nobody can tell me that this didn't happen, you know. So um, it's time that, and people are ready you know, they, 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 you know, one of the communities that I love because they are so passionate about, you know, animal rights, environmental rights, and they're, a lot of them are in very influential positions to do something is the Mal the community of Malibu. Um, you know, they are incredibly knowledgeable and passionate about this subject. And, you know, people are ready. They're teaching their kids, kids, you know, they don't, they don't need much information and then they actually get it and understand it better than we do as adults because we've been so tainted. You know, we're so jaded by the life that we've had to live just to survive as an adult and everything that we've had to go through. And a, and a child doesn't look at it through that prism. It's, it, it's a much more basic, much more simple, clearer prism. And they get right away why you shouldn't cage an animal and steal them away from their mother and harpoon them and drag them into land so people can make money off of them. Like they don't, you don't have to explain it. So, um, you know, so I think what's happening now is that it's, it's a lot, it's just, it's created a life of its own now. And there, it doesn't even need the next negative headline because people have just already shown that they're ready to move past this. They're, they're not ready to say, to say, I'm going to give you my money and, or endorse you or bring my children to learn from you when now I know what you've done to these animals all in the name of entertainment and for profit. So and that's what I love about it is that, you know, and and we all did that. No single person, no single animal organization, animal rights organization could have done that. It took all of us working together with our individual area of expertise. Mine was as a killer whale trainer and knowing that bubble of killer whale captivity. You also needed the orca researchers and the marine mammal scientists to say how they live naturally in their in their natural habitat. Um, so, and then you needed 
the people, the grassroots people, the people that are out there again, like the, and you know, Malibu is just one community I'm ex- using as an example, but all of these communities that have come together and said, this is not right. And this is not what I'm going to teach my child. I'm not going to teach my child that it's okay to, to, to use and abuse an animal for profit and for entertainment. I don't want my child being raised with those values. And, um, and now it's just taken on a life of its own. You have entire school districts that have, that will have canceled their SeaWorld trips, annual trips and said, no, we're never taking our school kids back to SeaWorld ever. And that's happening all over the United States. And, and, and also so many, what's happening in the United States has bled over also into Europe. We've made huge strides in, in all of Europe. Yeah, it's been, you know, congratulations to you for, you know, being able to, you know, in a lot of ways, spearhead all of these changes. And thank you. You know, I have one last question for you, which is, do you miss it? Do you miss the work with the animals? And what have you found a substitute for that kind of, you know, enjoyment if it was enjoying enjoyable for you at some point? You know, I will always miss the whales. You know, I love those whales more than anything in my life. And, you know, that is a void that will never be filled by anything else. I mean, that that when you have a relationship with an animal that is that intelligent and capable of so much and you've spent so much time with them. And and that again, that was your identity and your childhood dream and everything. You're never there. I accept and I've spoken about this with other former trainers that I've worked with. It's like a drug. It's like a high from a drug. And you know how they say that the first time you experience that high, you can never experience that same level of high the second time. And we would joke and say, like, you know, killer whale training and swimming with the whales. That's like a high that you're never going to get again. Like you're never there's never going to be something else in your life that's going to make it feel the same way. But I'm okay with that because I did that for so many years and um, I'm okay with saying, okay, I can ha- find other things in my life that make me happy and other things that I enjoy. I don't have to have that same level of just adrenaline and, uh, you know, just what it feels like to be in the water with a killer whale and have that relationship. And I will tell you this, and it took me a while to get to this point um, because I was so guarded and so protective about it. If you know, I have these memories that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. But if someone said, because I've been asked this only twice in all the interviews that I've done, I've, and I've done hundreds at this point, um, they said, would you would you um, give it all away if if they weren't in captivity? And the answer is yes. If I could give away my, my priceless memories that I will cherish for the rest of my life, if I could give them all back, and if that would have meant that these animals would have never been captured, if their mothers would have never been killed, if they never would have been harpooned or herded up by explosives and their entire lives were taken from them for greed and for profit. Um, absolutely. I would give it away. Well, thank you for sharing your stories with us on Inquiring Minds and for all of the advocacy that you do on behalf of these animals. I want to remind our listeners that uh, John's book, Beneath the Surface, Killer Whales, Sea World, and the Truth Beyond Blackfish is available at booksellers everywhere. And of course, people can also see him in the movie Blackfish. Thank you, John Hargrove. Thank you so much. Have a good day. 
Wow, that was an intense interview, and it definitely has me thinking about how we treat these kind of uh, aquariums and and the animals they're in 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 a really different way. Did SeaWorld have any responses to uh, some of the allegations? Yeah, so a good question. As we mentioned at the top of the interview, we actually sent SeaWorld a detailed list of allegations that Hargrove makes in the interview, and they declined to respond uh, to the detailed questions uh, that we sent. But they did say that many of his claims are false, uh, and they noted that they have disputed allegations made by Hargrove and other critics in the past. Um, According to SeaWorld, Hargrove's book just doesn't accurately reflect what we do, end quote. During the interview, uh, Hargrove alleged that SeaWorld has lied in its advertisements. And in the past, several lawsuits have been filed against SeaWorld for alleging false advertising, and they were dismissed, in part because the plaintiffs failed to point to any specific false advertisements. Recently, however, a judge declined to dismiss a new lawsuit accusing SeaWorld of false advertising. SeaWorld also noted that it recently announced that it would no longer breed orcas and would make other changes in their practices. Uh, So specifically to quote from their response, SeaWorld recently made historic decisions to make this the last generation of orca whales, end theatrical performances with the whales, and partner with the Humane Society of the United States. Society has changed and we've changed with it. We're focusing our resources on real issues that help far more animals like working with the HSUS to fight commercial whaling, shark finning, and continuing our efforts to rescue, rehabilitate, and release injured and sick animals to the wild, end quote. SeaWorld does plan to keep the orcas it already possesses, but says that future public displays of its orcas will focus on orca enrichment, exercise, and overall health. So there you have it. I appreciate the response, but it still brings up the larger question of should any of these types of animals, particularly these massive ones, ever really be kept in captivity in any way, shape, or form? Because it lends itself to some potential problems. You know, and this question isn't unique to sea worlds or, you know, aquariums of this kind of size. It it also is a question that we should be asking of zoos, uh, because, you know, certainly whenever there's an uproar, like recently, you know, that little boy who fell into the gorilla enclosure, you know, people were were really up in arms about that. Obviously, It it was a huge controversy. And you know, a lot of people are very much against zoos. I've just been in France for the last little while. and We went to this zoo uh, whose whole mandate is about protecting animals. And it was just it was the most amazing zoo I've ever been to in my life. It was just so beautiful. And the enclosures seemed massive and very enriched. I mean, they had like fog in the giant panda exhibit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was the it was the coolest thing. And it was a great experience. And at every you know, turn there, they'd list the conservation efforts they have made and, and what you can do to help these animals by, you know, not drinking bottled water and, you know, very specifically how animals are affected by humans. But at the end of the day, these are still animals in captivity. And, you know, no matter how well fed, uh, the tiger in a cage still looks like a tiger in a cage. And, you know, I, I don't know. What do you th- what do you think, Kishore, about just keeping animals like that. So I went to the San Diego uh, Wild Animal Safari Park recently with my family, and it's hard to argue against some of the conservation efforts that the zoos and, and these parks are able to fund by having so many people come through the gate. And a lot of times the animals that we're referring to are either injured or sick in some way where they would not survive in the wild. So I totally recognize that. And... 
emotionally, there's something that I feel when I'm walking around those places that this is wrong on some way. That while I enjoy the experience and I enjoy my son seeing the experience, uh, it just feels foreign. And uh, I, I really struggle with the 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 concept of them being in cages for us to look at. And, and cages are a, a, a tough word here. Uh, and I especially feel it for the larger animals, just because it's so, un, uh, you know, sorry for the weird term, but it's so unnatural uh, for them to be in a space that is that small. Even when the space is big, it's never big enough. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And there, there's, there's a lot of controversy here that we can talk about. But it's, it's true that, you know, you have these experiences and in the moment they are, it's like, you know, eating a bunch of candy, it's thrilling. But then when you go home, you kind of get the headache and the, you know, nauseated feeling of not having done something totally right. Um, so I don't know, but it certainly has made me rethink going to places in which these animals are, um, you know, sort of trained in the way that the SeaWorld orca whales are. I mean, that that seems like a whole, it's one thing to sort of leave an animal on its own. It's another thing to think about all the things that the animal has to go through in order to to perform for us. Um, I don't know, but, you know, certainly I feel that I, I don't know if I'll ever go to a marine park uh, that has a show like this. In fact, at the zoo that we were in, there was a sea lion show and I just refused to go. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure it didn't make a difference. It was, there's tons of people there, but, and we still paid, you know, the zoo admission fee. But, uh, but I don't think I could bring my kid uh, to SeaWorld anytime soon after this. I agree, and uh, I'm glad to see the end of the theatrical performances, uh, but I have to say, I think this show is going to linger with me, and Hargrove's words are going to uh, stick around my head for a while. Absolutely. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And thanks again to Magoosh for sponsoring today's episode. Magoosh's online test prep is the easiest way to prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, or Praxis. Magoosh offers top quality lesson videos and practice questions at an affordable price. Go to magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now to get 20% off with the code MINDS at checkout. And once again, let me recommend a podcast I really love called Remarkable Lives, Tragic Debts. With the help of an ensemble cast of voice actors, hosts Vanessa and Carter take you on an entertaining journey through real lives and unfortunately tragic deaths of people who've changed history. You might know the story or you might think you know the story until you listen to this podcast. It's one of my favorite ones. It comes out every Wednesday. Listen now in your favorite podcast app or visit parcast.com slash lives. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash lives. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chan, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.talmer.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures of you and your family at any kind of park or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. 
And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at IndreVis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you in two weeks. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.